Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. We are back. This is part two with our good friend, Lisa, that I tell you what, we, we had such a good conversation. We immediately reached out to her publicist and we're like, man, we actually, we realized after we'd finished talking, we hadn't really even discussed her, her, her upcoming book. And that was like the whole reason to have her on, but the conversation took on a life of its own as so often happens. And it was so stinking good. We just let it go. And then John and I were both like, okay, let's, Let's see if we can get her back because we, we'd really like to continue the conversation. So we are back with Lisa Sharon Harper. And we're just, honestly, we just, we just want to roll right, right into what we were just talking about a few seconds ago. We want to definitely dig into your book and some of the themes of that. And, uh, you know, just, just see what we can, what we can uncover. So welcome back. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you guys. Like literally thrilled. And I will say, I got my dog with me for the first, <laughs> the first 15 minutes of our, of our conversation. Her name is Babe and she wants to be a part of the conversation. So she just barked at me. That's literally, awesome. She's fine until we start taping. And then she's like, yeah. bark, 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 bark. You know, it's yeah. so weird. I feel like dogs can sense when the record button is hit. <laughs> I think they can. <laughs> we didn't hear a peep for the last 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, click record and babe wants to be heard. Well, babe should be heard. That is no problem. John's got a house full of dogs. And the only reason you don't hear my dog right now is because I'm actually at my, I'm at work. So <laughs> no, no dogs allowed in the restaurant, but. We're thrilled. We love dogs. John and I are both animal lovers, right, John? Absolutely. Well, you more so yeah. than me. I mean, I'm, I'm an animal liker. You're a. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a borderline menagerie at your house. We're we're, we're down to one dog. You know, sadly, yeah, really. We, yeah, we lost we lost two dogs over the summer. So unfortunately, oh, I'm yeah, sorry. we we had to we had to put down our German Shepherd over the summer, and uh, oh, my wow. daughter lost uh, while they were actually all in L.A. Her her little Kern Terrier passed away. Um, so. We are we are thinking about getting a second dog because none of our dogs have ever been single dogs. So our our single dog right now is a, is a little depressed. Yeah. Uh, oh wow! Well, they're very son, sensitive those dogs. My, my son brings his dog up from time to time. Actually, my son's dog is here, so we dog sit and then they get to hang out together. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll tell you what I just got babe back in November of last year. And I haven't been an animal owner um, since I was in high school. And it is a whole nother experience to actually be the owner, not the kid, you know, of the parent who had the dog. And it's just, it really is like adding an additional family member to your family. She's a member of our family. I love her. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect that. I mean, I really did. I thought, oh, I'm going to get a dog. Because that's kind of how we had, we had dogs that lived in the backyard. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right, um, right. My parents, well, both of them, their parents were from the South. One of my, my stepdad was from Mississippi. And so, you know, they just had, they just lived yeah. in the backyard and yep. they chopped wood and the dogs would come around. And that was, the dog actually had a best friend, the goat. No <laughs> 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 joke, a goat in the backyard too. And so, you know, so I didn't expect Babe to be all that, but here I have her like, Dressed up in a backpack. He's <laughs> 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 got boots for the for winter, you know, oh, for the no. snow. We're good. We're good. You're all bougie now. You've got the, yeah, <laughs> you got the backpack dog, dog and the, the jewel encrusted oh, collar. Yeah, no, no yeah. trees to chop down here in <laughs> South Philly. So. Oh man, I, I have I have a story. Yeah, I don't I don't nah. think I should tell this story. Never mind. <laughs> if you if you if you think you shouldn't. Yeah, you probably uh, should. Remind, <laughs> me, remind me, and I will tell you this story when we get off, and it's, uh, it's hilarious. But it's, it's, okay. it's, it's yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll hold it. Well, and let, people, people will now wonder what we talked about. It'll be great. Right? See that that creates tension and drama. So, uh, all right. So, hey, n- enough about dogs, and let's talk about let's talk about this book. So, this uh, the title of the book is Fortune, and uh, the the subtitle is really pointed. Um, what's the subtitle of the book? Remind us. It's how race broke my family and the world, and how to repair it all. Yeah. See, yes, it just gets right to the heart of the matter. How? Oh man. So without without sounding too pedantic, you know, tell us about the book. You know, um, if you want to give us a like the overarching sort of narrative here, and then I'd love to ask some specific questions. But well, um, yeah, just let us know what, what what's up. Sure. And the book actually traces 10 generations of my family story mm. and as, as a window into American history, like American racial history. Um, and so we actually, through looking at my family's story, you look at the story of race in America because my family, um, the first 
American-born ancestor that we know of that was not indigenous was born in 1687, just 23 years after the very first race laws were passed in Maryland, the the colony of Maryland where she lived. And only um, 20, uh, would that be 24, 25 years after the very first race laws ever on, on, on North American soil. So, um, so her body, her mixed race body actually absorbed the terror of those first laws and and her mind and her soul and her descendants. So her descendants had, we had three generations of indentured servants um, because of the way that the law was crafted to, to make sure that white men who have money are able to keep their money and gain more money, even as they exploit the, the women in their service in particular. But, uh, well, I can get into more detail there. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> Please. So uh, for those who aren't familiar, though, um, when you say race laws, can you give mm-hmm. an, ex- uh, an example of yeah, what, what well, some of those race laws looked like well, and what they were? Yeah, let's, let's go there. So the very first race law on American soil was in 1662. And you have to go back a little bit to understand what happened here. 1650, um, Elizabeth Key took her case to court. She was a mixed race, black and white woman whose father was Thomas Key and actually at some point in his life was actually a legislator in the House of Burgesses. He he recognized Elizabeth Key as his daughter. He, we don't, you could say, we don't really know if this was a love affair or if it was, um, if it was rape. But then again, you can also say, no, it was definitely rape because he enslaved her mother and had her out of that. So at the very least, the power differential, there wasn't, she had no ability to say no, right? How's she going to say no? Yeah. Um, he's her master. And so Elizabeth was the product likely of rape, but he recognized her as his daughter and had her um, baptized compelled by the state, by the, literally by the colony of, Mar- of um, Virginia to do that, but he did it. But then she was like, wait a minute. I'm recognized and I'm baptized. According to English law, I should not be able to be enslaved because English citizenship goes through the line of the father. It's my father who is the English citizen. And according to English common law, you can't enslave another Christian. So she took her case to court in 1650. And, and she won. <laughs> she won. And then a lot of other people started, wait a minute, my dad is an English citizen too, because this was happening mm-hmm. a lot. And wait a minute, I'm a Christian too. And they took their cases to court and they won. So 12 years later, the House of Burgesses says, wait a minute, we're losing our free labor. So instead of, they had a choice here, they could have said, you know what? We are going to, we're going to phase this slavery thing out. Um, you know, we have, we have a lot of mixed race kids here. Instead of, you know, marking them as enslaved people, we're going to mark them as free and we're going to, we're going to phase this out. That's like justice light, like really light, but it's right. justice light, right? They could have done that. They didn't do that. Instead, what they did was they shifted where citizenship came from. It no longer came through the line of the father. Now it came through the line of the mother. And they added two words. That, that created race-based slavery in America in perpetuity. Oh, wow. So if your mother was a slave, which the only slaves were black, right? We're Africans. So if your mother was a slave, then you too shall be a slave and all of your descendants in perpetuity. Whew. That's what created race-based slavery. So two years after that, um, that was 1662, 1664, Maryland's legislature says, wait a minute, we have a race problem too. But theirs was the exact opposite of the perceived problem in, in, in Virginia. Their perceived um, problem, they still did have the problem of white men raping black women. That was, that was happening. But that's not what they perceived to be a problem they would legislate about. Instead, the problem they legislated about was white women, indentured servants, falling in love with black men, enslaved black men on the plantations, marrying them, on the plantations and having their children, having mixed race children. So again, the question of what's the status of these children became the main thing. And of course, the white men's bruised egos that these white women were marrying black men. So get, get this, you know what their, what their response was? Their response, brothers, I need you to really take this in. Their response was to say, to declare white women who marry enslaved black men 
shall themselves become enslaved to the masters of their husbands. And their children will become enslaved in perpetuity. And the wife will be freed after the husband, after the African husband dies, but her children will be enslaved in perpetuity. And guess what, guys? So after they passed that in 1664, they look up maybe like 30 years later and they realize planters are now forcing European indentured, indentured servant women to marry enslaved <laughs> black men. So they did that so that they would have a pool, right? Of, they, of free labor. And they would increase in perpetuity. Their, in perpetuity and increase their profit margin in perpetuity. So, so guess what? So it doesn't end there. So the church looks up and goes, this is a Catholic colony, right? They go, oh, we didn't mean to do this, right? So, so what they do is they say, okay, no longer are the keys to enslavement or indenture going to be held by the planters because they have, you know, their own interests at heart. We're now going to give the keys to enslavement or indenture to the church. So the church then becomes the arbiter of who gets enslaved and who gets, um, who gets indentured and they are the record keepers and they often lose the records of indentured black people so that people can be held much longer than what, where they were, what they should have been. Um, and they had the most accurate records. Even the courts didn't have um, records as accurate as the churches. I just find that so mind blowing that the church would be involved even, <laughs> even on the periphery somewhat of any of this. I mean, it just, it, it I don't know. I, I can't even hardly wrap my head around everything you just said is horrifying. Um, and, and what kills me are that, like you, like you mentioned a couple of different times, there were opportunities to fix this or yes. at least to take steps towards fixing this that were just not taken. They didn't have to make the choices they made. No, but they did. And at every single point, and this is what I, I was literally blown away by this thought as I, and it just happened in every single era. I mean, it's not just yeah. fortune in 1600s. Yeah. It's also Henry and Harriet in the early 1800s. And it's Leah after the Civil War, before the Civil War and, and being enslaved in South Carolina. It's Lizzie um, and Jim Crow, South Carolina. And even when she goes north to Philadelphia, it is, it is um, Hiram Lawrence who lost a block of homes to eminent domain um, in Philadelphia. A block. He had a block of homes, um, but he lost that community. Um, but at every turn, the reason for the institution of these laws, these policies, these structures is for the benefit of white men, right. for the economic and social benefit of white men. Yeah, you see it. it, it it's as you, as you go through the book, you see it. It's this, it, you know, it's not only just, it's just, that's a horrible way to say it. It's not only white supremacy, it's male white supremacy. That's right. It. That's exactly right. right. Yep. So you see it here. You see it mm -hmm. again as they change the laws from indentured servitude, which is just another word for slavery people. You need to understand that they, they weren't going to get out of this. This, this idea that they were going to pay their way out in some time, in some area in the near future. No, it was built into the system that that was going to fail. They weren't going to get out. But then they yeah, went from this. Let me, let me just put this, let me, let me just add this one little caveat though. White folk did get out. So they had a yeah. seven year sentence and their, their, um, sentences were traced. They were recorded by the, by the state, right. by the church, you know, so the church kept those records, but black folk rarely got out at yeah. the right, right time. But then you go into a more what traditional, uh, what, what, what we, what we read in history of the slavery, right? Of slavery, which, um, this indentured servitude becomes a more what we see now as traditional slavery. Uh, but then as slavery is abolished, right? We have convict leasing, right? Uh, we have Jim Crow laws. We have redlining. We have the Tulsa race riots, right? Again. Uh, and what is, what is the, the underlying problem that, that is happening is white men can't handle the idea that people of color have any way or shape are moving towards bettering their life and equaling themselves to white male dominance. And that's exactly right. Listeners, you need to hear this because this is exactly what's going on in this book is white male dominance does not allow room for people of color to in any way, shape or form. Breathe. Better than breathe. Right. Yes. Breathe, breathe. To better themselves, to move forward in this society, to 
follow the American dream, right? Which for black people was just bullshit. It wasn't true. There was no American dream. This mm-hmm. manifest destiny idea, right? And each time it seems like they get a step forward, which, you know, the Tulsa race riots, which if you haven't heard that one, you get everyone needs to read about that. Yeah. Is a, a, just a, is such a perfect example within a very current context mm-hmm. of how white male dominance can't handle that, right? Yeah. I, I think, and I say this toward the end of the book, I think it's toward the end, um, but yeah, it's in the third part. The, in my analysis, I think that the principal sin, the core sin of people of European descent all over the world exacted through the colonial project, right? So um, through the age of colonization, which they, which y'all called the age of discovery. We call right. it the age of colonization. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's what actually yeah. happened. Depends on what side of that thing you're sitting on, right? Um, y'all didn't discover shit, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> but, but when it came down to it, you colonized the world, right? So, um, so it was the age of colonization. And, but through that project, that's when, that's, that's when the sin happened. And, and it, and it, and the seeds were sown there and they've been sowing, they've been, running through every single generation since. And the seed was the sin of not recognizing and honoring the image of God in the other. That really, it's that simple. It is actually simple because the image of God, theologically anyway, it is, you know, on the first page of the Bible is when we're, when, when it's declared that we're all made in the image of God, all humanity. So what it means to be human is to be made in the image of God. And what that means in the text is to be created to exercise dominion in the world, to be a- created to exercise stewardship of the world, to, ma- to um, a- exercise agency, to make choices that impact the world. Well, when you commit genocide and when you commit and when you enslave people and when you lynch people and when you um, hem people into prisons because they sat on a park bench too long through um, through Jim Crow laws that lowered the bars of criminality and when you wage drug wars that that then um, you then pump the drugs into the community to justify going in and breaking up the community as Nixon did. All of these, all of these are an offense, um, an assault against the image of God on earth. So I really do believe that the principal sin of people of European descent has not actually been to think they are supreme to other people. It's to try to be supreme over God. Mm. Oh, wow. To war with God. So as you, as you trace this, so as you trace this back for your family, see, see, for, for someone like John or I, you know, this is an academic process. You know what I mean? Sure. I can learn about it. I can try my very best to empathize. Um, but this must have had a, a particularly different impact on you, especially tracing it through your family and seeing really, the names of people that you're, that you're descended from. What does that do to your, to your psyche to see that that's the, that's the heritage that's been handed down? You know, well, I have to say the heritage that has been handed down that's very clear to me now is that in every single generation from fortune all the way to right now, we have been resistors of dehumanization. We have found ways, as Ruby Sales put it when she read the book, she was like, the amazing thing about your family, Lisa, is that you found ways to rise above and through the mess and actually um, found strategies of resistance that were passed down from generation to generation. So, so I'm actually really proud of my yeah, heritage. Sure. I think, I think that we were some strong people, everyone, <laughs> everyone from, I mean, from fortune who was separated by, by, from her children because they too became indentured because she was raped likely in the, in the course of being indentured. And so she had children and because she was raped, she was taken to court by the indenturing um, family, the, the family that raped her and, um, and then given seven more years on her sentence and her children were indentured for then 21 years because that was the law, right? So that was, and so it gave incentive to indenturing families to rape their, their indentured servants, especially the black ones, because they were sure to be, um, found guilty in court and, and then gain 21 more years or 31 more years of, um, of, of free labor, right? So, so fortune did that. She lost her children 
but her children all came back to her afterwards. Um, two generations later, though, that generation was was completely lost. They they crossed the river. They were brought to the other side, I believe, of um, of the Chesapeake Bay um, and made to live in Virginia when Fortune and her daughter, Sarah, their mom, lived in Maryland. And they they never they never lived together again. I don't know if they ever saw each other again. But Fortune did move back in with her father, um, Sambo Game. And yes, his name was Sambo. And do you know why? Because Sambo means second son mm. in Wolof, which is the Senegalese language that he came from in 1686. Wow. And okay. second son, I know that's part of the story. It, I got part of his story from his name. And Game is not the name of any white person owner or not in um, so Southern Maryland, you know, the Eastern shore, couldn't find any any white game. So I'm like, you know how they took the name of the slaveholder? Right. Well, that wasn't really happening so much any, yet at that point. It was very early in, in the development of um, the slaveocracy in America, on American soil, and so uh, in the colonies. And so game started, I believe, as gum, because mm-hmm. you see it listed as GOM in, in several places and then it's game and then it's GOM again. So it kind of goes back and forth depending on which document you're looking at. But GOM makes total sense because his ship, he was forced to board a death ship that they called a slave ship along the river Gambia. Oh, wow. And so that's where his ship came from. It was the Speedwell. I know that because it's the only ship that came in in like a, tw- a 10 year radius or, you know, period that was the, the only year, the only time that he could have been brought here given his age. And so Gam was, was, that's where he got his last name. And they originally, they, they eventually called it game, which is, you know, anglicizing it. So it's, it's, it's quite the journey. So the resilience of the games, right? The game McGee's, they owned land. They lived with each other. Betty, <laughs> Fortune's daughter, Betty, she actually buys land at one point in, in the mid 1700s, 1756, I believe. She she signs the deed to the land, and um, and then in the tax records years later, it's actually recorded that she refused to pay the extra black tax that was levied on free black women. Can you imagine that black free black woman? Living out in the sticks, I mean the sticks, I went to go see the land. It is in the middle of nowhere, but right next to a river. And, you know, some tax collector comes knocking on her door. I can imagine her coming out with a shotgun. <laughs> 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 I'm not paying your yeah. tax. You I'm not doing your extra black tax. And she just refused. <laughs> and, and the record shows she never paid it, ever. Mm. Which is amazing. That's my family yesterday. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So my mom was a member of SNCC, you know, in the in the civil rights movement and dated Stokely Carmichael for a minute, you know. And and so I think that and, and also the Bomba, if you read that chapter, I love that chapter. That's yes. the chapter about the weeks line coming from the Caribbean. Right. And how they learned to resist dehumanization through dance. Yeah. Through the, the Bomba dance, um, which is a festival, a very subversive black festival that comes out of black Puerto Rico. It is amazing. So yes, I'm very proud of that heritage. Yeah. That, that's an interesting part of the story. Um, and can you, can you kind of, uh, explain a little bit because your family mm-hmm. is here in the States, but at mm-hmm. some point ends up in the, the Caribbean, right? Part well, of the family. Yeah, it's not that they ended up in the Caribbean, although there, there, now that I've been doing more DNA research and everything, I think that there were probably some kind of trading back and forth mm-hmm. within, um, between Barbados and South Carolina. Right. Because, um, in fact, uh, the slave owner, Jonathan Lawrence, who was also a member of, con- of the original first Congress, he, uh, I believe had plantations in Barbados, right? So, and Lawrence is one of our family. And so on two different lines of our family, mm-hmm. we have connection to Barbados. Um, but on the Weeks line, they were originally brought there according to ancestry DNA. They can trace like the first origins of my DNA, um, from my, on my father's line in Barbados circa 1750. So they were likely brought to Barbados, brought into the the, quote, new world in 1750. The thing that blew my mind about that was that within one generation, within really within 20 years, that DNA 
was in every island in the Lesser Antilles. So they were sold, excuse me, they were sold into every island in the Lesser Antilles, basically everybody, everywhere but Haiti and Puerto Rico, um, the two big ones, the greater Antilles. And so they were separated. So there was a pattern of separation, a pattern of broken relationship within that family. And it goes on to this day. Right. But eventually... My great grandmother and grandfather met and um, married. They had my grandfather in St. Thomas and eventually made their way to Puerto Rico as many black um, ensla- formerly enslaved Africans did because Puerto Rico was a Spanish colony that was much more kind to people of African descent because one of the, one of the settlers that founded, quote, founded Puerto Rico was a black explorer. Um, and so... You know, they just, they never really had anything. Um, they, 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 they placed people of African descent higher than the Dutch did and the English did and treated them slightly better. Um, so a lot of Black folks streamed uh, to Puerto Rico after enslavement. And that's what happened with my family. So they lived in Santose at the time when, um, at just at the time, right after, right after America annexed it. And actually, I'm sorry, right before America annexed it, they were there for decades. And um, so they saw, they saw the transition from uh, an island that was kinder than the rest to people of African descent to coming under the rule of America, which was in the height of its Jim Crow era and eugenics. And so they saw that. And very soon after, they actually made their way to America and um, and uh, integrated a Jewish community in the South Bronx, which is really deep. They, they were among the first Puerto Ricans in the Bronx <laughs> in the 1930s. No joke. They were in, all there by the 1930s. Most Puerto Ricans didn't come over to the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, and at some point there were there were more Puerto Ricans living in New York, I think, than living in Puerto Rico. Uh-huh. Um, there's oh, a absolutely. massive population shift. Um, mm-hmm. um, I had a question for you though, because before we uh, before we started yeah. recording, we were having an, an interesting conversation, sort of about um, I guess it was almost about white fragility and mm-hmm. you know uh, the sense of white guilt. And oh, yeah. um, I had a question for you because I, I, if I think there's well, <laughs> there's not just one misunderstanding, but the, one of the deeper misunderstandings I think that white men, especially white people, have when it comes to issues of race is we don't understand the generational how it compounds. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we can we have yeah. this we have this knack of saying, well, yeah, but but I didn't do that. Right. Uh, my people didn't yeah. do that. Although John and I can't don't have to go very far back into our past to find out we, we probably did actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but I you know I I you know, I'm not racist, you know, I have black friends. But there is this sense that I don't think we understand the impact of generations and generations. Of, we're talking hundreds of years of of what has happened, you know, and the impact yeah. that that has that, that you don't get to just divorce yourself from because, well, I didn't do it. Right. No, that's exactly right. So, so for example, let me give you an example in the 20th century, right? So this is not, and this is the North, not even the South. So in the North, Philadelphia, 20th century, my, um, my great-grandmother, Lizzie Johnson, um, escapes the, the terror and also the oppression of, of South Carolina and moves North. She leaves her, um, her darkest children behind because she's light enough. She's only, she's octoroon. So she's only one eighth black. And so she can pass for white. So she does. And so she ends up getting a waitressing job in Philadelphia at this, at one of the most swanky hotels in Philly, the Grand Hotel. And, um, and, but eventually she's found out. And when she's found out, she's put in the kitchen because they did not have black waitresses. They just did not allow that. And so she's put in the kitchen and made, she eventually becomes a baker, really a renowned baker in Philadelphia. And she calls for her darker skinned children. So just think about, there's a, there's a multiple, there's a web of systems of oppression in that one part of the story, right? So there's, there's the reality that she was forced to leave the degradation of South Carolina, the only place our family had known for hundreds of years. And yet she had to leave it because South Carolina at the end of reconstruction passed a law that said that black people could only work in two industries in South Carolina, either the fields or the house. 
what does that remind you of? Yeah. <laughs> like, they were literally trying to reinstitute slaveocracy. Like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The right? more they stay this was this was right at right as the reconstruction fell, right? So they they passed that law and it limited, it limited the ability for the image of God in her to flourish. And if you're human, you have the image of God in you. And if you have the image of God, you are created to flourish. You're created to to be creative and move and and use your mind and do stuff and invent stuff and and dance and but with only two ways that you can live in the world, Lizzie wasn't having that. So she went north and she figured out a way to survive. And that was to pass at least until she could establish herself. So she passed, she did it. She, and then she called for my, her darker skinned children when she was found out, um, actually before she was found out and then she was found out. And so that, right. But then when she moves into South, South Philly, she's now redlined. Like she's right. now moved into a segregated area that's redlined in South Philly. Now it turns out her block actually does have several new Italian immigrants that were not yet thought of as white. Right. Okay. Yeah. So they're living right next door, whatever. Um, and they're living all up and down the block and, and, and whatever. But, but the city, get this, the city, um, listens to the new Italian immigrants who want the trees cut down because they want to be able to hang out their windows and yell to their neighbors and know who's coming down the block. But the black folks who had been there for generations now, they don't want the trees cut down. These are their trees. They, they planted these trees. They had relationship with these trees. One day, my, my mom wakes up and she's like eight years old, seven years old, and all the trees are gone. The city had literally cut down all the trees in her, in her community. And they did not ask the black people who have been there forever, do you want this? So what does that do? It creates heat islands, this heat, the heat island effect. It creates higher um, incidence of asthma. It creates higher incidence of heart disease and things because it's too hot now to go out and go walking because you don't have shade. Um, now, in the 1970s, in, in early 1970s, Nixon targets black communities um, with the drug wars. And his legislative director, um, Earl, I mean, Earl Lickman, I believe his name is Earl, Ehrlichman, <laughs> sorry, Ehrlichman confessed to this um, in a 1995 interview. He, he said that Nixon um, did not launch the drug wars to end drugs coming into America. He launched the drug wars in order to, um, in order to have an excuse to clamp down on black communities and hippies, his two political foes, clamp down and break up the communities was the words he used. And so he did. And you know how he did it? He, he pumped drugs into black communities through the mafia, through small time dealers and through the police. And so South Philly, the neighborhood where I live right now, one block from where my uncle died of a heroin overdose in the 1970s. Um, was pumped full of drugs and little kids that were singing doo-wop on these corners in the 50s began to drop like flies from drug overdoses um, and were rounded up and put into jail. And then Reagan continued that mess um, with that, with his drug war. And he allowed drugs to be, and actually ordered, I'm sure it's on some level, though I can't prove that, I don't think. But it is documented that drugs were pumped into this area. Again, this time crack. Um, right. And my grandmother died at the hands of a crack addict who beat her to death because he was trying to bilk her for everything she had a block from where I'm sitting right now in South Philadelphia. So this community became like a, it literally looked like a bombed out war zone in the year 2000 when I came back to speak at my cousin's church around the corner from here. And I said, what happened? The drug wars happened. So you have layered trauma. You see, nobody's mm -hmm. ever, nobody ever did anything about that law. They, they changed the law in South Carolina, but nobody ever said sorry. Nobody ever gave reparations for, for the lives that, the, the livelihoods that were never realized because of that law. Nobody ever gave reparations for the trees that were taken away and the health um, risks and, and not risk the health um, impacts that that had on the community for, for decades. Nobody ever gave reparations for the 1.5 million black men who are now, right now, missing on America's streets because of the drug wars, because right. of being rounded up and put in prison and also dying from drug overdoses. So no, so that's layered trauma. Mindy, 
Fully Love, um, sociologist Mindy Fully Love, she talks about that as layered trauma. And that is what we, what we deal with in the Black community. We never have a moment to actually work through the last trauma before the next one comes. Well, and just when you, just when you think you can stop and take a breath, George Floyd or something, yeah. you know, like, okay, yeah. like, like at what point uh, it, it's relentless, you know, and that was yeah. the one thing. And I, and I know that, you know, one of the things that I've recognized about, um, about my own, my own privilege is that I have the opportunity when I, when I want to, to not think about this. Hmm. Like I can leave here today and I can just put it on a shelf for a while and I can, or I could write a Facebook post and, you know, right. and, and, you know, sound sympathetic and whatever, but I don't have to think about this constantly. So one of those things that we talked about in church on Sunday, as a matter of fact, was, you know, I'm getting tired of Christians who don't think that Christianity is, is political. Mm-hmm. I don't think Christianity should be partisan politics. You know, I don't, right. I don't believe in partisan politics, exactly. but mm-hmm. everything we do has a political component to it. Exactly. And recognizing that we have the privilege at times to just not even, I, I, to not think about it. When my, when my friends of color and my LGBTQI friends, you know, they don't have that privilege because this is their daily life every single day and it matters and it's life or death. And so, to not speak out is to be complicit, right? And that's so, exactly right. So that's that's kind of where John and I both are sitting. Can I add something here that you know that word privilege. I mean, I, I it's real. Oh, I mean, yeah. you see, you see the privilege of whiteness, right? The oh yeah, 100%. privilege of whiteness with the with the story of fortune and the reality that the reason why she was not enslaved, as opposed to you know indentured. And all of her children could not be enslaved. They all, and grandchildren, could, they all had to be indentured, not enslaved, is because their lineage went back to a white woman. Right. That's eventually how the law shook out, that if your lineage goes back to a white woman, you can't be enslaved. You can be indentured, but not enslaved. And so that's the privilege of whiteness right there. It's the privilege of whiteness that white men, actually, according to the law back then, they were supposed to be, um, they were supposed to be penalized just like anybody else, but they never were. Right. They never were. They were never brought up on charges, even though they were committing rape left, right, and center. Um, at least, at least, um, according to, uh, some, re- um, scholarship on colonial um, practices of sex and domination, and then also my own DNA evidence in my own body, right? So seeing the, the surnames of my indenturing families, my, my ancestors' indenturing families in my matches. So I, I think that what we, um, have to come to is we have to come to a, a moment of reckoning. Um, in order for us to get past this, we have to move through it. And there's no way, there's no way for us to move through it without men of European descent really reckoning with what you have lost. Like you said, um, you said, I, I believe, Nat, that you don't really have to think about all of this. And to some degree, no, you don't. You don't have to think about all of this. But on another level, you are living it. Oh, like yeah. the very reality that to be white, your ancestors had to renounce where they came from. To be white, they had to forget, like literally erase the history that came before America. And the reason they did that is because whiteness, what, it, what did it do? It gave power, right? right? It gave the ability to... to exercise dominion on this land. But what did they gain? They gained the power, but they lost their soul. Right. They lost connection to the land, to themselves and to their own story. So I think that's why January 6th happened. I think that's exactly why it happened because if your identity is tied to a phantom thread called whiteness, it doesn't really exist except for the power that people give it and people are beginning to take that power away. Yeah. Then what, then what's left? Yeah. Well, then there's a real sense, um, that that's, that's the sense I get from most people who are sort of virulently racist or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Um, is that there is a real sense that they're clinging desperately to something that they've lost or they're losing. Yeah. And the last vestiges of whatever this, you know, construct of whiteness is, is being stripped away from them. Yeah. It's, it's a, I guess I, I, I guess I, you know, part of me wants to empathize because, you know, 
try to find common ground with, I guess I can empathize with that, with that fear. But at the same time, man, like you said, you're, you're clinging to a thing that is not real. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, right. you're grasping desperately at something that is literally just a phantom. I like that word phantom. It's a yeah, construct. Yeah. It's not a real thing. You're mm-hmm. clinging to something that was created to give us power over somebody else. It was right. literally created for that. Right. Well, I hadn't thought of it in those terms of, of what we lost. Cause you know, John and I are, you know, we're, you know, born, bred American, whatever. Right. Um, right. Um, and so, and there's very little connection to any, any sort of ethnicity beyond whiteness. Oh, you know. but see, and that's the problem. Yeah. This is an ethnicity, right? But because it's white is not an ethnicity, <laughs> no, right? White is a but, race. But when I fill out a form and they ask me for my ethnic identity, I'm supposed to say white. Oh, so. but see, and this is and this is literally this is what this is what I'm saying. This is what fits before you hear in Fortune, what you'll read in Fortune. Yeah, is that I believe that what's going to need to happen is that men like you. People, men of European descent are going to need to do your DNA. You're going to need to figure out the rest of your story, the story that came before whiteness. Who were you before you were white? Yeah. How did your ancestors come here? There's only three ways that it could have happened. One, they were among the nobles that were, that were granted land. And so they were the ones that, and I say nobles in quotes, right? Right, right. The, the noble class that was granted land. So they came here and they were, they have been or were among the people who benefited on, on every level at every juncture. Usually, in fact, one thing I found in my research is usually you'll find the same surnames that are ruling the world now are the same surnames that were here in the very beginning. Yikes. Like that's, it's so deep, but it's real. And it's been a multi, like a 400 year propping up of those noble, quote, noble families. So you're either among them or you came here fleeing oppression or poverty. It's one of those three. There's no other story that comes out of Europe. You were either noble class or you were fleeing oppression or poverty. And if you were a noble class, you have a lot to reckon with. You have to reckon with the reality that you, you have your riches today. You have your inheritance today because your ancestors stole land from indigenous people and likely participated on some level with genocide. Um, and likely, benefited, definitely benefited from and likely participated on some level with slaveocracy. So you got to deal with that. You have to reckon yeah. with that. Um, and then, but if you came through oppression or, um, or, or poverty, you have to reckon with what your ancestors did once they got here. So for example, I think we might've talked about this last time. If you have Scotch heritage, if you're Scottish heritage, um, a lot of Ulster Scott people flooded into the Americas around the same time as Fortune. In fact, Fortune is half half Ulster Scott, right? So her mother was Ulster Scott woman. Um, they were in, they were becoming indentured and fleeing what they called persecution in Belfast, but what the Belfast Irish would have said was an insurrection, an uprising against people who were trying, who were helping the English to to colonize their land by planting plantations there, right? So what happened with these Ulster Scots people? The McGees, the family that Fortune came from, her, the white side of her family, they moved from Maryland down into the South, into Georgia, and then across and they go West all the way to Texas. They change their names when it gets South to go from Muggy, M-A-G-E-E, to McGee, so that they won't be recognized as Scottish among the Irish there. And they become among the largest slaveholders in the whole South. And that's what happened with most of the Ulster Scots who came around that time. They, they invested in the slave trade deeply. Why? Because they were oppressed by Europe. And when they got here, they could be the noble class. They could be the ones who actually benefited, right? So you got to figure out where do your people lie in that? Were you not even here back then? Where did y'all not even, did your family not even come until it was Ellis Island, right? Okay. Well, then where did they live? How did they interact? How did they enter into the racialized story of America? What is your part of this story? That's how you take yourself out of the netherworld of the, of the ghost land of whiteness and reroute yourself in the reality of your actual ethnic identity and the history that comes with it and join the human story. Yeah. 
Wow, that's powerful. Um, yeah, that now really I'm going to go get yeah. my DNA done because uh, all, right. no, it's, all that's really, because that, that's helpful. There's what I love about everything that you say, by the way. I love, I, I just love, um, it drips with, um, with compassion. Um, it drips with authenticity, but it also, it's, it's providing a framework for a path forward. So, and that, and I think that's important because, um, there's enough, there's enough of us who can very easily identify problems, or at least we, at least superficially yeah. we can. And then we get to a place of, okay, yeah, but what? What do we do about that? And I love that it can start with us. Okay, well, let's, let's reclaim those things that we might not even realize, um, have been taken from us. Yes, exactly. Right? So I've, exactly. I'm, I'm, that's, that's an interesting take on that. So there's, there's a piece of my history. There's a piece of, of my, of my legacy that I don't even have access to because we've simply, um, adopted this, um, this false whiteness as our, as our, uh, as our history and our, our, our ethnicity. Well, Matt, I will actually say you have a lot of access to it now. You just haven't, you haven't yeah. searched. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it is, it is, there is, let me just say, there is no excuse. There's no excuse. <laughs> for anybody right. of European descent to not yeah. race, unless you have an ancestor who really wanted to hide. And so they hide stuff and they do assumed identities. Well, then they're not wanting you to know. And then you got to ask, well, why didn't they want you to know? Well, That's right, story right, in itself, right? right? Now, see, there's, there's stories though that are coming up. I have a friend of mine who, uh, you know, his wife is convinced that her father's not her father. Mm-hmm. So she, she ended up doing her 23 and me or whatever she did just to, just as a way to prove what she thought yeah. was, was right, you know? And she's like, uh, look at this. Um, yeah, couldn't be my father. We don't, I don't have any of the same history, but she also found out that she has, she's, uh, one sixteenth, uh, Congolese. Wow. <laughs> she's like, I'm like, so oh, there's history there. Well, there's, there's history there. now. I want to dig into that history because yeah. uh, um, yeah. that, that, what, yeah. what an interesting story. So, yeah, I'd like. I'm always very curious because uh, the only the only part of our ethnic background that John and I can claim uh, we we're ninety, you know, we're, we're pretty sure we're Irish. Um, and there's always the there's there's always family folklore about you know some some in some Indian heritage, some Cherokee or you know some whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, most of well, us have stories I, like that, but mm-hmm. but regardless, I, I I'm I'm ninety percent sure we'll go, we'll go back there and find that there will be surprises. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you your surprise because I've done oh. the twenty, I've done twenty three and me. Ooh, uh, look at this! Oh, we're we gonna go. get a reveal on the show. A reveal. According to according to twenty three and me, we are one hundred percent European. <laughs> oh man! Okay. <laughs> I know well, that, all the stories are just obvious. what they were. They were stories. <laughs> but um, do you know the breakdown? Do you know the breakdown? Uh, we're eighty nine point nine per. I am. I am eighty nine. About eighty nine percent British Irish, which kind of fits because yeah. uh, our grandmother's last name was McCarn. Uh-huh. Uh, or McCairn. Uh, there is some, oh, there's some questions yeah. as to what, uh, and then on my, on my father's side or, or my, on my father's side, there's where we get turny. Oh. Uh, there is, there is some weird misspellings of that too. But yeah, like 6% Scandinavian, less, a little bit less than 1% Finnish. Mm. Uh, yeah. dope. we went deep into that pool. <laughs> Although <laughs> Keith, yeah. you think of the Irish. Italian. Yeah. So, what? Sweet. Yeah, 2.3% Italian. So, there you go. Hey, but, so this, this goes to a, a stories that, you know, I have been told growing up, right? So, mm-hmm. and, and I know you've heard them and I know Nat's heard them. Well, the Irish came here as slaves too. Oh, like, goodness. Uh, no, no goodness. they didn't. First of all, everybody who is of Irish descent, you did not come here as slaves. You might have come here as some kind of indentured servant. That's right. Uh, because you had to pay off your passage to this country. Mm-hmm. One generation or less removed, as you lose your Irish accent and you mm-hmm. gain your whiteness, mm-hmm. you melt right in. Yeah. It's really true. And But let me also just say that, I mean, again, this research is like... It's it's kind of I'm sure frustrating to talk with me now because I kind of know too much. <laughs> the opposite of frustrating. What are you talking about? This is fantastic. No, this is- I just like I have an encyclopedia in my head now from all this all this research. But <laughs> yeah. so in the Caribbean and Barbados, there actually was um, the practice of what they would have called enslaving. Um, uh, uh, Irish people for a time, but then it very quickly morphed into indenture, and then the, then enslavement transferred over to black people. Right. So they like they would they basically like made Barbados a colony where they they took their their Irish 
uh, prisoners. Right. So they, it was like a prison island kind of a thing for a long time. And then it transferred over to, to Africans being enslaved. And the Irish then kind of becoming the go-between between the English masters and the, and the, the African um, ens- um, enslaved people. And also, yes, you were not enslaved, you were indentured. But the reality of indenture, you said it earlier, yes. it's really true. I mean, ears were lapped off. Right. were laughed off. People were quartered. People were, I mean, people were whipped. People were hung upside down. People were, were hung right side up just for, for, for doing one infraction. So what we'd normally, what I, how I normally thought of, um, you know, indentured servitude was like, it was, it was basically like a really bad job. You yeah. just didn't get paid for it. Right. <laughs> you know, kind of a bad job you're not getting paid for. But no, it was slavery that had a time limit. That is what it was. I mean, the, the, the character of it was slavery. It's the only thing that was different is that it had a time limit. So that's trauma. Y'all had trauma. Oh, absolutely. I layered, like you said. Mm-hmm. But there's this, there's this idea of, um, and you definitely correct me if I'm wrong on this, um, of this, okay, so you have this indentured, these Irish indentured servants, right? Mm-hmm. Working side by side with African slaves. Mm-hmm. African indentured servants, actually, for a long sorry, time. Yes, um, but there was this opportunity for them to come together and rise up against the hierarchy. Right. And what right. the hierarchy saw that they could do is to create this division between these white indentured servants and black indentured servants and say, see, white people, white indentured servants, you have the opportunity to step out of this. We're right. going to give you that. And that creates a separation between these two groups of people who actually should have been working together yeah. against the slave owners and the hierarchy. That's right. And, and you know what? And many times they actually did. Like many of the rebellions that happened in South Carolina and Virginia um, and the Deep South and Georgia, I mean, thousands of, of rebellions happened, um, right. slave rebellions, um, but they didn't only in, uh, have um, Black folk being a part of them. Often, especially in the earlier years, they also included indentured Irish and, um, and Scotch Irish, um, people who were indentured because they had common, they had, um, common cause. And even toward the, um, in the middle of the Jim Crow era in the deep South Mississippi, and I believe in Alabama, there was real organizing that happened, labor union organizing that happened across race. And they began to gain real power. And that's when um, the powers that be, the white citizens councils and everything came down incredibly hard on them, on the white folk and black folk alike, and broke them up because they realized that's a real force that can really be reckoned with, I mean, or that, that would need to be reckoned with. So, um, Dr. Um, Reverend Dr. William Barber, um, his father was a part of that organizing in North Carolina, and the the word that he uses for that is he calls it fusion politics, understanding that all of our um, we are all in this together. This is not actually a matter of white people benefit from this and black people benefit from something else completely. No, the reality is is that. When black folks, whenever black folks have benefited from a law or from economic policy, white people did too. A great example of that is um, when when President Johnson wa- launched his war on poverty. Um, at that time, that was that was uh, around um, 1966, 1965, 1966, right after passage of the Voting Rights Act. He launched the war on poverty. And in 1959, 55% of all African-Americans were living below the poverty line. Think about that. 55%, the majority of people of African descent in America were living below the poverty line. And that was the first time that the poverty line had been codified. And so, you know, so that's where, that's where we have it. So he launches the war on poverty and the thing is, white folks were also pretty in dire straits. I think 20-something percent of white people were living below the poverty line in 1959. Well, 10 years after he launches that, in 1974, 1975, they have, we have now cut the poverty, um, the poverty uh, rate in America in half. 
we literally cut it in half and we, we, we cut it by 20 points in the black community. And it was cut down by like 30 points in the white community um, altogether. So not 30, it couldn't be 30. So like about by like 20 points or so. Mm-hmm. It was almost like almost nil. So right. whenever there's been policies that have been focused on helping black people to rise up out of the inequity that we started with at the baseline, White people, poor white people, middle-class white people have always, always benefited from that. But when we have focused on policies that help the the very top, some inkling, some trickle down of white middle-class have benefited, but white poor people haven't. In fact, they become more more poor and black people also become more poor. Right, so, so okay. yeah, John and I grew up under, you know, under Reaganomics, you know, yes, and so yes, you know, the trickle too. down, trickle down economics was, you know, was 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 pretty much that was what we were we, we were taught, and that was the deal, you know, and right. we all know what a, what a crock of crap that was. I mean, yeah. those things oh, don't totally. trickle down, especially when the people at the top hoard, you know, exactly and accumulate. I mean, there's there's I mean, I, I'm getting to a point in my life where I just don't even see the justification for there to be billionaires. I don't understand how you get to accumulate that much at the de- to the detriment of everybody else around you. It's a combination, right? It's yeah. a combination of things. They they killed the unions, which was the main way that poor white people were able to barter for better better wages um, and better working conditions like since the turn of the 20th century. Um, and then after they killed unions, then they also um, they 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 created um, the tax brackets the um, whereas the top tax bracket used to when when Carter was in office used to pay seventy percent hello seventy percent of their earnings when Reagan first came into office um, toward taxes and that was the lowest point since World War II where where the top bracket was paying 95% of their earnings, 95% wow. to, to the country. Um, and, and that's how we paid for World War II, right? Um, but so by the time Carter is in office and by the time um, Reagan comes in, it's 70%. Well, by the time he left, we were at 20 something percent. Yeah. 20 something percent. So, so what happens there? 27% for the top bracket, that means they're keeping a lot more of their wealth right. and it's accumulating wealth. Um, and so right. you, you basically have over the next 30 years, you have the rise of the billionaires right. and the shrinking of the, of the white middle class well, and everybody yeah. else. And too. you don't see, you know, you don't see a correlating rise in wages. You don't see people right. benefit because right. and that's and that puts the lie right. to all of that, right? When you yeah. see that wages have stagnated, you see that all the you know the, the these guys are accumulating more and more and more, um, mm-hmm. and they are not. They're just not. They they never had any intention of, yeah. of sharing that wealth, you know. Yeah. So that's it's a it's it's a multi generational problem, like you said. It's uh it's it's I don't know. I just I just want I know we're kind of getting uh, close to the end of our time. So I <laughs> I just want to I want to bring up one more thing that you bring up in part of like the end of the book. Sure. And it kind of dovetails into what you're just talking about as 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 the uh, black communities are building. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word. It's not wealth, but as, as they are becoming. Having a better place in society—that's still that's bad. I think that's building bad language. wealth is actually the way to put it. Yeah. No, building wealth is the way to put it. We are we are now positioned right. We but we see lower class white people coming up with that. Right, there's yes. a benefit. Right. So yeah. here's the question, and this is the one that's going to make some people mad, and I don't know why. I really don't know why. It's okay. But, okay. Reparations. Right. Yeah. Let me talk reparations. Let's talk about so, it. Yes. Okay. So from that. Example you just give. How does how do we not see that by giving the African community the the um, reparations to all of the shit that they were handed over hundreds of years? How do we not see that that's also going to rise raise the poor white Everybody. class with them? I mean, Everybody. that's the yeah everyone. You know, as as what's I don't know what the saying is something about um as as the all as boats the, rise. You know, all boats yeah. rise. There we go. That's what yeah. I was like. So yeah. how do we how do we where have we missed that point? I mean, I, I know where. I, I know exactly who's who's giving who's feeding us this line, this this isn't gonna mm-hmm. fix anything. But how do we as 
for lack of a better description, how do we as white people stand up and say, yes, this is, this is, this needs to happen. Reparations need to happen. It's funny, actually, um, Martin Luther King Jr. made this point in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Mm -hmm. Um, And he wrote that book months before he died. Right. Grab it off my shelf here. Literally grab it off the shelf. And I'm going to read you a piece of what he wrote, which I just thought was amazing and prescient because it's exactly where we are right now. Um, Let's see if I can find it. Yeah, I think here we are. The Assistant Director of the Office of Economic Opportunity, Hyman Bookbinder, Great name, right? Love yeah, name. great, great name. <laughs> <laughs> in a frank statement on December 29th, 1966, declared that the long-range costs of adequately implementing programs to fight poverty, ignorance, and slums will reach $1 trillion. Now that's in 1966, I'm sure it'll be more now. He says, he was not awed or dismayed by this prospect, but instead pointed out, that the growth of the gross national product during the same period makes this expenditure comfortably possible. It is, he said, as simple as this. The poor can stop being poor if the rich are willing to become even richer at a slower rate. Mm. Wow, what a what a what a cost! <laughs> you <laughs> well, might have to get richer slower. Sorry, and, and you also right. you, you break it down in your book. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of money that reparations would affect a single person and people, it's nothing. It's literally <laughs> nothing. Yeah. You don't, hey, don't go out to eat one day. <laughs> Basically. Literally. Hey, yeah. that, that's asking a lot of me, John. <laughs> this, this body wasn't built on, you know, fasting and no. I, that's uh, it's, a, it's something that definitely needs, it needs to be discussed more, you know, um, yeah. uncomfortable as it might be. John and I have decided a long time ago, I think one of the things we keep saying is, is um, we want to get to a place where we're, we just get more and more comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, we have to, because you can't simply bury your head in the sand and, and play the game. And so things aren't happening around you that, um, that, that are uncomfortable and, and not right. I would really like to, to close with, uh, with, a, with reading a section of the book. Is that okay? Please do. Absolutely. That would be yes. amazing. Yes. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So I want to read you guys um, the passage from the last page of the book. So you know how some people flip to the back page and they, <laughs> yeah. they read the, first page, the, black, the last page first? Well, here you go. Okay. okay. There are two paths set before the oppressed. One path leads to rage, compounded pain, sickness, and death. The other leads to the beloved community. On that road, there is truth-seeking, truth-listening, and truth-telling. There is reparation and equity, and there is mercy, release. For the sake of my body and soul and the bodies and souls of my family's descendants to the 10th generation from me, I choose the beloved community. For readers in European bodies, you also have a choice. You can continue your war for supremacy against the image of God on earth. You can resist God's beloved community, resist truth, resist equity, resist justice, and resist mercy. You can try to maintain your, t- your space at the top of a crumbling racial hierarchy. You won't be there long. You are already in the global minority. Within one generation, you will be in the minority in the United States as well. And when that day comes... You can wage war or you can lean into truth, into repentance and repair and allow yourselves to be released, forgiven. Only then can we find a new way of being together in the world. I can almost hear my seventh great grandmother, Fortune Game McGee, who walked this land 10 generations ago and absorbed the wrath of its first race gender, and citizenship laws into her traumatized body. In my mind's ear, I hear her whisper, yes, child, yes. I'm not even sure what else needs to be said, John. Yeah, nothing. I have nothing uh, to add to that. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) Uh, Um, I I want to close with this. Um, Thank you. Um, Just from the bottom of my heart, thank you for for your work. I, I love 
um, I don't know. I just love how much you obviously have 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 dived into this, and how much you've devoted to it, how much how much scholarship and research has gone into it. If you haven't bought the book, pre-ordered the book, get it. Um, I'm getting my copy ASAP. It needs to be on your shelf in your library. Um, and in the conversations that honestly, I, where I think this really needs to be front and center in the church, because I'm, you know, the church needs to be part of this conversation if it's going to have any relevance going forward. Um, so I can't wait to share this with, with my congregation, um, share it with the people that I talk to. And I just, man, I can't thank you enough. I feel like I'm just effusive at this point of just like, I just, I'm just enamored of everything that you have said. And, um, yeah, John's, John, John agrees, although he's laughing at me. <laughs> Go ahead. Keep babbling, dude. I'm just, no, I'm I just, just no, thank no. you, Matt. I appreciate yeah, it. What, John? No. You're just going to pick up me for, no, no. Um, I, I, uh, Nat, Nat has said it so, so well. I, I, there's nothing more I can add than just to say thank you also that, um, to give two middle-aged white guys like us a chance to chat with you and, and open our eyes, right? You know, I, I, I feel like every one of these conversations is a stepping stone in the right direction. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, Nat and I have talked about, you know, you know, it's, it's vitally important to be on the right side of history. You know, we might have, you know, I'm, I'm 51, almost 52 years old. I spent a lot of my years complacent and quiet and, um, it's yeah, time no to it's time to speak out. It's time to say you're either on the right side of history or you're against this, and you need to choose mm-hmm. your side. And unfortunately, we see people doing that. You know, uh, January sixth was a perfect example of people choosing a side and choosing poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. scarily poorly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're seeing, you know, as as we're moving forward through all this, we're seeing how this is all going to pan out. You know, and I hope, you know, with the Ahmad Aubrey case, and we see, you know, um, the it's a, it's a small step, but it's a step in the right direction. And, it's a step, you know, it is. And, and the recent uh, uh, the recent decision by the judge to not accept the plea against the hate crime, I, I applaud that judge for making that stand and saying, "No, I'm not. I'm not accepting your plea. This was a hate crime, and it has to be has to be addressed." You know, we could have quiet that could have quietly gone away. A plea could have been made somewhere in a back room, which I'm sure still will happen. I, 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 you know, the pessimism in me still says, you know, it's, it's not far enough, but it's, it's, it's good to see that we're moving in in that direction, even a little bit. And again, I just want to mirror what Nat said and thank you for, thank you for giving us the time. And we really, really appreciate you giving us this, this time. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.